This morning we are going to be doing a study in the book of Colossians. I don't pretend to be able to cover an entire book of the Bible, uh, per se, in, in one class period. So we're just going to be hitting some highlights. Uh, but I've titled this The Christian Guide to the New Life. I think Colossians, as we walk through the book, it serves as a, as a good guide uh, of how to live the Christian life and what that looks like. I, I think um, as people that sometimes, rightfully so, um, major on, on baptism and, and the uh, order of salvation, how to get into the church, um, at times we focus so much on that that once we get a room full of baptized people, we can sometimes look around the room and go, okay, well, what do we do now? What's the next step for our life after we do this? And, and I think uh, Colossians is helpful for that, as we're going to see, because Colossians is a book written to Christians. Uh, Paul is not writing a persuasive letter to uh, a group of non-Christians trying to tell them how to be saved. In fact, you're pretty much not going to find that in any of Paul's epistles. They're all written to groups of baptized Christians. And because of that, it serves as an example to us of how Paul says uh, to live as a Christian in whatever society we find ourselves. If you're going to look at modern-day Colossae, uh, well, I'll just say this. I think I'll save the airfare in going to Colossae, right? This is Colossae as it exists today. I mean, I would love to go and see it, especially because it's right in the middle of a bunch of other really neat places. But what it looks like today is basically a bunch of concrete blocks, Right? The, the modern-day city of Colossae is nothing that special, but there was a time where this city was thriving. Uh, it was an important piece of the economy of Asia Minor. And so what we see with Colossae is that it was a city that had a really strong industry for red wool cloth. They were kind of known in the region uh, for what they had to offer uh, all throughout Asia Minor. But Something happened uh, around 100 BC, and, and what that was is there was a new settlement built called Laodicea. And Laodicea, uh, basically built with the intention of becoming an industrial powerhouse, uh, became the primary competitor uh, for Colossae. It's funny, I'm not trying to say Colossae was the Gainsborough of Asia Minor, but we can almost imagine a situation where at one time it was thriving. You constantly hear people talk about it. I remember when every side of the square had two grocery stores and a department store and all this stuff. And, and Colossae, during the New Testament time, kind of found itself in this position because Laodicea had come in and taken a lot of uh, the thunder uh, away from what Colossae had to offer to the economy. So it became a smaller city. Uh, but after this, we, we see that Colossae, Laodicea, and another nearby city, Hierapolis, you read about all these in the New Testament, they were actually destroyed by earthquakes twice, uh, which is one of those things where you go, well, I can imagine maybe it happened in one time, but twice is kind of insane. But once in the early first century under Tiberius Caesar, an earthquake came through uh, and basically destroyed these cities. They were rebuilt. And then in the 60s under Nero, uh, these cities were destroyed again and then rebuilt, but they never really uh, attained to their former glory during that time. And so I, I include this to say none of the Bible was written in a vacuum. When Paul writes to the Colossians, he's writing to, to perhaps new Christians or, or fairly young Christians in the faith, but they're also people, right? It's the same thing uh, that we would see in something like the book of James where it says you can have faith all day long, you can have all the belief in the gospel and the Bible, but if someone comes up to you that's hungry uh, and you say, go in peace, I'm praying for you, be warmed and filled, and don't do anything to help them, 
then you don't really understand the needs of a person, right? Christians are humans, and the people that Paul wrote to in Colossae were people that had had a history. Uh, Their families had had a history. They'd been affected by some of these things. So they had problems, but as we're going to see with Paul, Christ is always the solution. Christ and the new life in him is is the, the answer for everyone, no matter what your background is, no matter what your history is. Paul himself was going through some particularly hard times when he wrote the book to the Colossians because this is what we know is one of the prison epistles. So Paul wrote the book of Colossians uh, from a jail cell from what we understand. Now let me say this if I was writing you a letter from prison it would come up a lot. I would constantly be saying by the way I'm in jail right I've got chains around my wrist I'm really hurting. Paul doesn't talk about it that much. He doesn't spend the whole letter saying, hey, you got it great. Just be happy that you're not in prison like me. But he does mention uh, in Colossians 4, the start of verse 3, he says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So Paul says, because of my preaching of the gospel... I have been put in shackles and I am sitting inside of a jail. Um, later, he, he mentions another person who he calls my fellow prisoner. And so Paul is going through things. The Colossians have a history that they're working through. But, it, but Paul is going to write this letter. Uh, and what I like about Colossians is it's a very positive letter. Um, go read the book of 1 Corinthians and Galatians and then come back to me and you'll understand what I mean by Colossians is a positive letter letter. Uh, With books like 1 Corinthians and Galatians, Paul is doing kind of damage control on a lot of problems that have already arisen in these churches. He's saying things to Galatians like, I can't believe you so quickly left the gospel that you were preached, not things that you want the apostle Paul to be saying to you, right? You want him to say, good job, pat on the back, you're doing great, keep it up. He says something along those lines to the Colossians, to the Ephesians. And so it's a very positive book. Um, and I appreciate that, not because I think, well, I don't have any problems that Paul needs to address. I'm doing it just right. And so I'm, I'm ready for a pat on the back and an attaboy. That's not it at all. But what it means is, for the, for the vast majority of us here this morning, I think we do live our lives trying our best to please God, to obey him, uh, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And Colossians is a book written to that kind of person, the person who is, who is sincerely trying their best to follow the will of God. And even once we're there, Paul still has instruction for us. Here's what you need to focus on. Here's what you need to do, what you need to set your mind on. And so a few uh, base things in the book. Again, we're not going to be able to go through the entirety of Colossians this morning as much as I would like to, but we're just going to hit a few things throughout the book. And so uh, if you know Colossians well, you may say, well, why isn't he talking about this? Why isn't he talking about this passage? Uh, There's a large passage in chapter one that talks about just the kind of unbelievable glory of Jesus and who he is, uh, you know, the exact image of the Father. Wonderful passage, one of my favorites. We don't have time to get to it this morning. There's a large discussion on baptism in Colossians chapter 2 that I'm not going to have time to get to this morning. So there's a bunch of different places you could go, but I'm going to hit a specific few things that focus on the new life in Christ and how Paul talks about that in the book of Colossians. To begin with, we see in Colossians chapter 1, if you want to turn there, you're welcome to. Uh, In the very first part of this letter, as I've already stated, it's important to remember that it is written to Christians. Uh, It is written to people who are already in Christ. Paul says in verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, 
Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. And so you see here, Paul is saying, we, we thank God when I pray, I thank God for the church and the Christians at Colossae. I thank God for all of the Christians in Asia Minor and all the Christians around the world, but especially you because we've heard of your faith and not only that, of your love. Now, isn't that interesting? There's churches really everywhere, but we could even say churches in our area, churches that we know of, where you'll hear people say, man, they are one of the most sound congregations in the world. They have it right down the line. I'm telling you, as far as doctrine goes, they don't get anything wrong. And then you say, well, how much of a loving congregation are they? Let's not talk about that, right? You walk in the door and they won't look at you. They won't talk to you. And we, again, we, we always have to be on guard that whether we're there or whether we're here at Center Grove, that we never let that be the case. We always have to love one another in Christ but imagine the Apostle Paul saying, we thank God for the love that you have, not only for each other, but for all the saints. You love all the brethren around in the other churches around the world. And it says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And so <clears throat> Paul is talking to people that have an assurance that they are heaven bound. Paul has an assurance that they are heaven bound. This isn't a discussion around you all are in danger of losing your salvation. Now, again, we're going to see in the letter, Paul is going to reference and say there is a possibility that you could lose your salvation. But I think that we should always remember as Christians that we don't have to sit around wringing our hands going, I, just, I hope I'm saved today. I hope I'm okay today. I hope I, that God's grace is on me today. If we're walking in the light, we don't have to worry. We don't have to worry at all. We are in Christ. And Paul says that there's this hope of heaven that's laid up for them, right? Uh, I remember in the old days, uh, and I say the old days for me, this was the 90s. You may laugh at that. But I remember in the 90s that at Walmart, when we wanted a, a video game or something that was a little bit more expensive, we put it on what? Layaway, right? And I remember going to that little back room at Walmart and, and finally getting something off a of layaway, and it was just so exciting, right? We knew this was waiting for us. Well, he says the hope of heaven is laid up for these people, right? It's like it's got a name tag on it that says holding for the Colossians, right? It's waiting for them in heaven. And he says that this gospel is bearing fruit in all the world as it also does among you. So the picture that we have painted here is of a church that has faith in Christ. It has love for the brethren. They have the hope of heaven laid up for them, and they're bearing fruit. It's a pretty good report card, right? That's, that's about as much of an A as you could hope for in the life of a church. But let's go on and see uh, what Paul mentions here. He says, we thank God for you, but he continues and says they pray for more than just thanksgiving. He says, and so from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And so Paul says, we've been praying, not just thanking God, but we're also asking God for these things. He, he kind of binds them under this general thing of saying that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So there's, there's a knowledge component, a mind component, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him. That, that encompasses what? Mind 
and body, action, right? What we think and what we do. And he's praying for these specific things. One, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so Paul says, I'm praying, number one, that you continue to bear fruit. He says, it's already been bearing fruit, but I'm praying for continued growth of fruit so that you can have every good work and the knowledge of God. Again, we, uh, I think sometimes we take biblical knowledge and, and, and we, we kind of condense it down to something very simple. And I will say for someone to be baptized into Christ, they don't have to know the whole Bible. You can pretty much fit what they need to know on a bookmark and hand it to them, which is great. That's a wonderful thing. But we have to progress past that knowledge. And Paul says, you've already been baptized. You have the hope of heaven laid up for you. And yet you still have to increase in knowledge, or at least you ought to want to, and I want you to, and God wants you to, so I'm praying for that. But he goes on to say beyond just, again, having the knowledge and doing the good work, he says, I'm praying that you'll be strengthened with all the power of God's might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, it's one thing to say, again, we have knowledge of God's word. We understand the Bible. We understand his will. And then even to say, not only do we understand it, but we actually do it and we complete it and we obey it. But even beyond that, there's this attitude component, right? How we feel while we know it and while we do it. And Paul says, I'm praying that you're going to be strengthened for all endurance and patience. So while you're thinking correctly and doing correctly, I want you to have patience to be able to keep doing that. And Paul says, where does that patience come from? He says, he says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Who's his? God, right? We can't get that endurance of our own holiness, right? None of us, if left to our own devices, have the strength to continue being a Christian. If someone's 95 years old and they've been a faithful Christian for the majority of their life, and you ask them, well, how have you found the strength and endurance to do that? And they say, I'm just really good at being a Christian. I'm just really faithful. It comes easy to me. I'm questioning that person's wisdom, right? Because it's only through the power of God that we can have that endurance, but not just endurance and patience, but he says with what? With joy, now, that's the other part, right? Because there's people that are, are faithful Christians that, again, they think right, they do right, but their face looks as sour as can be, right? They're not happy. They may say, well, I'm just putting my time in here so I can enjoy it in the hereafter. But Paul says, no, I'm praying that you're going to be strengthened with endurance and patience so that you can have joy for the life that you're living, right? And then he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's the gas in the tank, right? How can we have joy while we're enduring, while we're going through trials, while we're trying to live the Christian life? Paul says giving thanks to the Father because he's already qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Again, that doesn't just mean heaven, but it includes heaven as well. He's saying as far as that goes, you're already qualified. Baptized Christians are not going through heaven tryouts. We're not going through and trying to reach heaven and say, well, I hope I can do enough to earn heaven. When you hear someone say, well, I, you know, on the last day when I die, I just hope I've done enough to get in. That's not the right mindset. That's not a biblical mindset. The mindset is God has qualified you. He's already given you grace. 
Now what do we do? Now we move forward, we bear fruit, we continue in good works, and we pray for the patience and endurance to do that. Now, you hear this, you may go, man, the Colossians, they have it all figured out. They truly are the holiest of people. Uh, they, they are God's special project church where, man, they don't have any problems. But note what Paul says in verse 21. He says, and you, you Colossians, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by death in order to present you holy and blameless blameless and above reproach before him. Now, pausing right there, he says, you who were once alienated, who once did evil deeds, have now been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now, do you think any of the Colossians ever sinned after they became Christians? They had to, right? They're humans. They sinned. They're, they're fallible. They fell short. But note, he says, you were once this way. You were once alienated by your deeds. But what was the difference? Now you've been reconciled in his body, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Remember this well. If on the day of judgment you are a sterling example of morality, you are an upstanding citizen, you're a great American, you've always done well for your fellow man, if left up to your own righteousness on that day, you will not be found holy, blameless, and above reproach. No human will. Even the Colossians, as good as they seem to be, if left to themselves, they would never be called that. The only way to appear that way is to be in the body of Christ. Jesus does the heavy lifting. Now, again, we have our works, we have our faithfulness to do, and we're about to read about that. But just remember, it's Christ that presents us holy, blameless, and above reproach. I think, again, there's this thought on the day of judgment that we're going to be sitting before the throne of God, that Jesus is going to be in the prosecutor's stand, and he's going to point at us and tell God every single thing we've ever done wrong. But that's not the case. Jesus is taking his church and he's presenting us before God and saying, through me, they're holy and righteous and clean. He's on our side. And so that's what Paul says here. But he says <clears throat> a two-letter word that carries a lot of weight, right? If indeed you continue in the faith, right? It's not all-encompassing. It's not absolute to the point where he says, you know, you were once alienated, you were once doing evil deeds, but now Jesus has done this for you if you continue in the faith, right? There is that component of continued faithfulness, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so Paul says again, <clears throat> your sinners in the past Jesus has made you holy, and he's going to present you as holy before God if you continue in the faith and the hope of the gospel that you heard. And I, and I don't think we should forget how easy it is to lose our hope as Christians. Uh, when we're first baptized, when we have that kind of conversion experience, we have this, <laughs> this lucidity, this understanding, this excitement of, I know who I am. I know what I'm focused on. I know where I'm going. This is what my life's all about now. But give yourself 5, 10, 15, 25 years, you get into the grind of it, and sometimes it's hard to remember what was this all about. What am I doing? And Paul says, no, you've got to keep that hope of the gospel, right? That's got to be centered and brought to the fore of your mind. 
Now, finally, before we move on uh, kind of to our main points here, Paul's going to talk about the, the fact that the Colossians are Gentiles. And that's uh, this, uh, to us today, this doesn't really jump out to us, I should say. If you've grown up in church and you've heard a lot of sermons and classes, you know about the Jew-Gentile distinction. But in the first century, I don't think we understand how subversive it was that Gentiles were now being brought close to Yahweh God, the Old Testament God, the God who said, don't intermarry with the peoples, uh, don't come near to the peoples, keep yourself holy. But now God has brought the Gentiles in and he's given them salvation in Christ. At the end of Colossians 1, it says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Now, we love the word mystery. I love it at least. Mysteries are so fun and exciting, right? What's the answer to the mystery? What's the mystery of this thing? I want to you know, do an investigation and find it out. Well, Paul doesn't leave us hanging, right? He says how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The mystery of the prophets in the Old Testament that was not revealed until the New Testament was God is working to bring all people into his kingdom. Even the Gentiles, even the dirty, filthy foreigners, as the Jews would have thought of them, they are being brought in to the covenant. And he says that the mystery is Christ in you Colossians, in you Gentiles, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, that's interesting in and of itself because, of course, we want people to be in Christ. We want to teach all people so they are baptized into the kingdom. They are in Christ. They're, they're saved. But Paul goes beyond that and says we, we don't just want to present everybody in Christ, but we want to teach everyone so that we can present them mature in Christ. There's a continuation even beyond becoming in Christ to being mature in Christ. The person who just comes up out of the baptistry, are they mature in Christ? No. Does the person that comes out of the hospital nursery, are they mature in life? No. Is that, a, is that their fault? Is it their fault when a baby isn't mature? No, that they are what they're supposed to be. But there is a problem if that baby comes out of the hospital and two weeks later it hasn't gained any weight and, and two months later it hasn't grown any. At that point, we're starting to worry about what? There's something wrong. There's something wrong with this child. It's not thriving. If we don't do something, its life is going to be in danger. Well, Paul is saying, no, we want everybody in Christ, but we want everyone to be mature in Christ. We want them to grow into who they're supposed to be. Again, baptism is not the finish line. It's the starting line of becoming who God wants us to be. And Paul says, that's what I'm working in you. And so again, we see that the Colossians, they had been sinners, but they'd been saved. They'd been made holy in Christ. And they had they'd loved the brethren. They had had faith in Jesus. They had done what he wanted them to do. Paul's praying for them. Now we're going to move on to Colossians 2 and see Paul giving them instruction for how to live this new life in Christ. But before we get to the new life, we have to start with the old life. Now, you may or may not remember what your life was like before you became a Christian. It's very interesting, and I'm speaking from my own perspective, but I was born and raised actually in this church, right? Uh, several of you remember me probably in diapers and from a very young age, and I think growing up in the church leads to a kind of a different path than people that come out of the world into the church at an older age, right? 
I grew up in Bible classes hearing, this is how you act, this is how you think, this is what you do, this is what's important, and you kind of grow up in that community, so when sin comes, you take a step out, right? And I don't mean to say I, I was born and I was a Christian when I was born, you know, they, they, they put the Christian stamp on me when I was born and I was all good, but what I say is I lived that lifestyle until a point in my life where I saw sin and I chose sin, Right? So the old life looks a little bit different for me than it does for the person who struggled with, uh, again, addiction or, or alcoholism or sexual depravity or whatever, and then came to Christ and changed their life, right? Now, again, uh, sometimes we get very uppity and we see people and say, well, man, they're, they're not really qualified for salvation. Look at what a mess their life is. Those are the people Jesus came to save, right? So the old life is there. But again, once we walk away from that, at times we think, well, now we're living the new life. There's really no danger of that old life coming up. But we're going to see in chapter 2, Paul is going to talk about not just the old life of sin, but rather the pull of the world that comes at us from different avenues that try to pull us back into the old way of thinking. It's not just about what we do, but it's about how we think. I'm going to skip the first part and come back to it of Colossians 2. But note what Paul says in verse 5. He says, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order in the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so Paul says, I see your works, I see what you're doing, and therefore as you received him, walk in him. Right? As you started, continue. What you began, finish. Right? Walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. But finally, and I think this is a good point for us, abounding in thanksgiving. If you want homework, and I know people love homework, go home and look at the book of Colossians, and every time you see the word thankfulness, thanksgiving, thanks, highlight it. Because Colossians is full of of thankfulness in everything that we do. Give thanks to God, abounding with thanksgiving for what he's done for us. This is the path that they're supposed to be on. This is the new life standard. The road is set out ahead, but the problem is there's, there are things trying to take them off of that road. In the first four verses, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Pause. Has Paul ever met the Colossians personally? Doesn't seem like he has. It seems like probably Epaphras, who was an associate of Paul's, had gone into Asia Minor and taught these people. So Paul had never met them personally, but yet he still felt the responsibility for them, right? And so he says, I'm, I'm struggling for you and those at Laodicea. Makes you wonder if there was a little bit of bad blood over that. Oh, you can't ever talk about us without bringing up the Laodiceans, right? The Laodiceans, the city that, that unseated us from our... But he says, not only for you, but also for your brothers in the city next door, I'm struggling that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now note this, this is important. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The word all is kind of absolute, right? And Paul says in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I want you to think about in the world at large, smart people. There are people that are kind of famous for being smart, 
Um, you know, Albert Einstein's the one you go back to, right? I think they still have his brain in a jar somewhere. He was that smart. But you think about today, there's figures like uh, Dawkins, Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, Hawking, uh, who has come up in the news lately. Um, all these people that were kind of famous just for being so smart, right? Uh, that, that they uh, had all these ideas about the world. But Paul says all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in who? Christ. If there is true wisdom and knowledge out there, the source of that is Christ. Now, I'm not saying that, that uh, Dawkins and, and Tyson and Hawking aren't smart people in their fields. But who created the fields that they're in? Who created space? Who created physics, right? God's the creator of those things. And, and though the world will tell us, well, you're just a stupid Christian. Well, you're just a backwards Christian who doesn't know anything. We can say, no, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. He's the source of all those things. And Paul says this, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, that comes from the ESV, your, your New King James. I think it says something about persuading words or persuasive words. But I think the thought comes through when it says, hey, Jesus is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. So don't let someone persuade you with a good argument. I think that there is a misconception, especially as we study Christian apologetics, as we look at the world around us, where we say, hey, we just have to listen for the best argument and then go with that. That's a helpful tool. Reason is a helpful tool, but it is not infallible. And somebody may be able to walk you from point A to point B to point C, and you may say, wow, that makes all the sense in the world. I think they really have a point there. But that is not the end all, end all of knowledge. Paul says the, the treasure of all wisdom is found in Christ. And I want you to remember that so that when someone gives you a plausible argument, because you may say, well, every false teacher's argument is going to be implausible. Not always. That's not always the truth. He says, I'm telling you this so that you know it's in Christ and that any other argument you hear is not going to be able to cut it when it comes to the wisdom that you find in him. What were the sources of these plausible arguments in their day? You basically had two large paths. On one side, on the left here, you have the rabbinical Judaism, right? The rabbis of Judaism that had all of these uh, deep theological thoughts. They had all of these commentaries on the Old Testament, and they had great points, right? There's still people today that go back and read the rabbis and go, man, these guys, they had 1,500 years to think about the Old Testament. They were really smart, and they really could uh, persuade people with their words. And then on the right, you have this orator, right? This guy standing in, in these fancy clothes in front of people with his arm upheld, and he's orating, right? He's talking about any number of things, about the universe, about the gods, about philosophy. And so from the Jewish side and from the Greek side, you had people that were trying to, to sell wisdom to people. This is how things work. This is how life really is, and this is how you should live it moving forward. But Paul's going to address both of, both of these things in Colossians chapter 2. Uh, Colossians 2 verse 9 this is him kind of taking on, I would say, Greek philosophy in a way of speaking. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, you may say, what in the world are elemental spirits? And people have wondered and debated that in this passage. But I tend to think, based off the language, it's talking about the base elements of the world, okay? We're talking ground, dirt, we're talking plants and trees and animals. And, and the Greek and Roman philosophers, they would look at these things, and they would even intuit things about 
the universe and God. Now, we say all the time, you can go outside and look at a tree and know what? But there's a God. You can look at creation and know that. But we have to be careful in noting that people have done that in every culture around the world. They've just come up with the wrong God, right? Nature itself doesn't tell us everything we need to know about God. And he said there are these people that have philosophies according to human tradition that are according to the elemental, spirit, or, yeah, elemental spirits of the world. He also, I think another translation, uses elementary spirits, right? It's kind of a beginner's course. We can all understand dirt and trees and rocks and that stuff. He says, you've moved on from that. They teach you this, and they teach it not according to Christ, right? Christ is the answer key to understanding the entirety of human existence. It says, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so he says, hey, if you want to understand the universe, if you want to understand the gods, all you need, you don't need Zeus, you don't need Poseidon, you don't need the pantheon. In Christ, the man Jesus Christ, the entirety of deity dwells bodily, right? The entirety of God sits inside the frail human body, at one time at least it was frail, of this man Jesus. And it says, and you have been filled in him. Deity filled him and you're filled with him. The funny thing a lot of times is just letting Christians know that what you already have is better than anything the world can offer you. Now, it doesn't feel like it. We don't feel like we have Jesus coursing through our veins necessarily. But the Bible teaches us, look, you already have him. There's nothing better. There's no better understanding, nothing better anyone can offer you. And it says you've been filled with him who is the head of all rule and authority. But he goes on from the Gentiles, and now he moves on to, again, the Jewish mindset. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses, verse 13, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. A law cannot save. A law can never save. A list of rules can never save. It's never going to give you a pat on the back for following them. It's only going to do what? Strike you down when you break it, right? And he said that legal debt was standing against us, and Jesus set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So again, we see that those Jews that want to talk about the law and the keeping of the law and the following of the law and circumcision and all of these things... It says that God is making you alive through a different means, through the cross of Jesus. And he goes on to say, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There is a huge movement right now among people my age it's called the Torah observant movement. And it's people that are, again, a lot of times professed Christians, but that are saying, hey, we've really not given the Old Testament its due. We've really not given these feast days or these food laws their due. We need to go back and start looking at these things and live the better life through doing them. And what I will say is, if you want to keep a Torah observant diet, you're not going to hear a complaint out of me. If you're going to tell me the Old Testament has been underutilized and we don't have as good of a knowledge, I say, amen, brother. We need to understand it a lot better. We need to study it a lot more. But Paul says if, if a Jew comes to you and passes judgment on you based on the law, based on their Judaizing principles, you tell them, hey, those are the shadows. We've got the real deal. 
Jesus is the substance of every sign that the Old Testament had to offer to Israel. You can go to the sacrificial system. You can go to the feast days. You can go to every aspect of it. Jesus is the one that gives it its substance. And so we see here at the end, I think this is very important and helpful. It says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What's Paul saying here? There are people out there that say, hey, if you keep yourself from this kind of food, that's showing real faith. Hey, if you buffet your body, if you make things harder on yourself, that's a real sign of your faith. And, and that makes sense to us as humans. We withhold stuff from ourselves. We say, hey, I'm not going to do this. And that shows my faithfulness to God. And Paul says that is not always the case. God has given you some things. Let's throw out bacon for one. Big fan of that, right? And Paul says, you are no holier for keeping yourself from that. That's asceticism, right? Being a monk. saying I'm not going to have any fleshly indulgences. I'm just going to pray and read the Bible all the time. Paul says, that sounds good, but it's going to do nothing to help you stop the indulgence of the flesh. In fact, it does the opposite, right? When we deprive ourselves of every possible good thing, that makes us want to do what? Most of them, every bad thing, right? Paul says it's of no use to you in that way. What's the ultimate message here? The message is the world is best understood through Christ, his death, his resurrection, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says, use him, go with him. Now, very quickly, because we're almost out of time. Colossians 3, we have, again, the new life, the new mind, and the new way of acting. Paul says in verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I know that you've heard this verse before. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. And at times as Christians, what that leads us to believe is, I'm supposed to hate my life. I'm not supposed to like anything in the world. I'm not supposed to care about my family. I mean, Jesus said, you got to put me above father, brother, mother, and sister, all these things that will perish and pass away. And, and there's, there's a truth hidden in there. That is true to an extent. But that's not what Paul's talking about in this passage. When he says, put your mind on heavenly things and not on things on the earth. He doesn't mean don't think about the mountains and the rivers and the valleys and the beauty of creation. He says, that stuff's garbage. Just think about heaven. It's not what he's saying in the context. I want you to follow with me. But again, oftentimes we think that the heavenly things and the earthly things here are talking about maybe invisible things versus visible things. And that's hard for a lot of Christians when Paul says, think about invisible things all the time. How easy is it for us to understand that kind of stuff? Not at all. We can't think about it. Or even if he said, well, we're talking about spiritual things and physical things, right? Corporal things. Those things don't matter. All, all that matters is the invisible. That goes back to our sometimes misunderstanding that we will forever be corporal beings, okay? The spiritual body is spiritual in nature, but we will have a resurrection body for all eternity. We'll always be body and spirit, right? And so he's not just talking about uh, things that we can see versus things that we can't, right? Note what he says here. Uh, I have, I'm not a good Christian if I don't dislike this life. That's the thought that a lot of people have. And, and again, th the whole truth is not there. John says in 1 John, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, note what he means here by the world. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. 
John says, when I'm talking about what's in the world, these are the things that I'm talking about, right? What's he talking about? Sin. Sin is that which is of the earth. And Paul does the same thing in Colossians 3. Note what he says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Don't put your mind on the things of earth, but the things above. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What is that? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Later, he says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. If this is talking about the physical versus the spiritual, are any of these things necessarily a physical object? Is, is anger and wrath physical or is it mental? It's a mental thing, right? So at least in this context, Paul is saying put away what's earthly. He's talking about sin, right? That sin that reigns in us. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And so that's what he means by putting away the earthly. So what do we do instead? He says, instead, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, save and free, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. We're running out of time here, but as you, if you went on through Colossians, you'd see Paul say, put on these things instead. Right, as holy and beloved, have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint, forgiving one another. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He says, have a new attitude. He then goes on to say, have a new heart. Have peace in your heart. Sing songs. It's, it's funny when it comes to our, our singing as Christians. You have people that come to church and say, well, I'm just not much of a singer. Right? I don't like to sing to God. Paul says singing is one of the the, the key evidence is that you've changed your heart you say old jim he's a good old boy he would not really wanted to break out in song before he became a christian and now he sings out of his heart to god that's an evidence of a new heart of gratitude and then he goes on at the end of the book to say hey this new life with the wisdom of christ it's going to change the way you live out even your common everyday roles right wives are going to live differently husbands are going to live differently children are going to act differently parents are going to act differently slaves and servants are going to act differently and even their masters are going to act differently what we see in the book of colossians and i, I implore you go and read it at home study it yourself is that paul says the wisdom of jesus changes everything it teaches you how to live the entirety of life in a different way and with thankfulness in your heart so thank you for your attention this morning